You're listening to Grow Yourself Up, a weekly mental health podcast hosted by Kath Cunahan. I'm a psychotherapist, writer, and speaker working in private practice in London. I specialize in the impact of our own childhood on our parenting and how we can heal and integrate our childhood trauma, wounding, and stress so that we can inhabit our full adult selves. Join us each week as we talk about all things growing ourselves up, how we can tend to ourselves in our parenting, generational healing, and overcoming the impacts of childhood trauma. Together, we will become more self-compassionate, connected, authentic, resilient, and heart-centered, so we can live our own full and beautiful lives. As a listener of this podcast, you're welcome to come over and join the Facebook group. So search on Facebook for Grow Yourself Up. It's a private Facebook group of all the listeners. And did you know there are journal prompts that go along with every episode? So sign up for the journal prompts on kathcunahan.com or go to my Instagram, kathcunahan, and sign up at the link in the bio there. And you will get my newsletter, Nurture, Heal, Grow, which contains all the journal prompts. Looking forward to seeing you in the Facebook group. The podcast is produced each week by the wonderful Audio Cafe. Thanks for being here. Hello. Today I'm joined by Emily Adler-Mosqueda. I actually met Emily online in 2019. We did a course together. And so um, there's something here about making online friendship and about um, there's a web of support for maternal mental health um, across the world. And I'm so delighted to be um, part of this web of change makers with, with all the guests on the show, actually. Okay, so I just want to give you a bit of detail about Emily. Emily's a clinical professor, pediatric speech and language pathologist, postpartum activist, author, and mother. She blends her knowledge of motherhood studies and personal mothering experiences in her work with graduate students in pediatric clinical training at the University of Oregon in the U.S. In her memoir, Unexpected, a postpartum memoir, Emily shares the arc of her mothering experiences and life experiences earlier in life that put her at risk for mental health struggles she experienced late in her postpartum with her second child. And um, we're going to be talking about maternal mental health in this episode, uh, meeting our inner child and parenting, a bit about rage, and how both Emily and I share about some of this from our own experiences. You can find Emily on Instagram um, at Emily Adler-Mosqueda and at postpartum365. You can get her book, which is published um, at the beginning of February, whenever you buy books, or from the Motherhood Studies publisher, Demeter Press. And all these details and how you can connect with Emily are in the show notes for this episode. Okay, let's dive in. I hope you enjoy this episode. So Emily, delighted to have you here. Do you want to tell us a bit about your experiences of being pregnant and the different um, experiences you had in each postpartum? Yes. Thank you, Kath. So lovely to be here. Honestly, when I met my husband, he and I were both unsure we wanted to have children. Um, however, as I aged a little bit more and the biological clock kind of got louder, um, I did and we did want to have children. So we found it actually surprising that we had to work at that for some months before we fell pregnant. And ultimately, we did get pregnant with my with our first daughter. And I felt pretty horrid for about 16 weeks. And yet, 
you know, was trying to believe society saying, oh, you know, enjoy it. This is a good sign. And I thought that was kind of confusing because I felt so awful. And yet I was also so excited. So um, at that point, I didn't really know how to hold kind of the both end of it can be hard and uncomfortable and happy. Yeah. And I think, can we, can we just actually, I think that's such an important point because pregnancy is actually such a hard time. Yes. And there's not enough space given to talk about like, this is actually the hardest time. And I'm not sure I can get through these like nine or 10 months, but I have to, if we want a baby, but I feel so sick. Yeah, it was. Yeah. So it was until about like week 16. I remember I was way in a sweet 16 that I got some relief and, um, you know, really turned a corner and started to feel that glowy, happy feeling. And thankfully, um, I continued to feel that and really um, began to enjoy pregnancy. I felt like my child could, I would tell her, okay, I want to take a rest. I'm tired. Let's lay down. And magically, it seemed she would not squirm while I took a 20 minute rest. Almost right at 20 minutes, she would start moving. I'm like, oh, (laughs) yep, that's that's right. I said 20 minutes. Let's get up. And um, so already, you know, establishing that relationship in utero was enjoyable. My daughter was born at the end of 41 weeks. So right about when my obstetrician wanted to talk about um, induction, she kind of started to come on her own. And I had done a hypnotherapy, hypnobirthing program, and um, very much was enjoying the birthing process. Uh, I did end up having an epidural with her because the labor was lasting so long and I was so fatigued and thinking, oh my gosh, how am I, I going to birth this baby? Um, when I'm so tired and I need to rest. So, so after she was born, even in the hospital, I was excited to have people come visit. I kept calling, referring to the hospital as the hotel <laughs> and having people come. And, um, I, I was really a hostess. Um, I'm laughing at it now because I think how ridiculous that was for me to be my in-laws came, um, my friends came. Um, there were people in the hotel hospital room. Um, for, uh, you know, we had our intimate, you know, skin to skin time and Luke had his, but then people were in the room for the rest of the day. My daughter was born in the morning. Wow. And I'm, I kind of marvel at my, my youth that I had so much energy to host and hold that experience for those people. And even going home, I, the first night, and I, I'd write about it in my book. I told Luke, now you go to bed. I'm going to stay up and wait till she needs me. Wow. Who says that? <laughs> I I really felt then that I needed to be on retainer for my baby and just be completely, utterly available to her and that that was what a good mother did. So very, very high expectations. Yes, and, I, and, and very hard to keep up. But I managed to do so maybe at the cost of my own physical health or mental health, but I breastfed my daughter, was able to breastfeed my daughter many more months than I did subsequently her younger sister. And I do think that that buffered a lot of things. I remember there was a few times that I wanted to breastfeed more for myself and the letdown um, hormones that I felt when we breastfed um, with letdown than maybe she was hungry for or so hungry for. But I do remember a few times of, oh, I'm, I really want, I, I need us to breastfeed versus you need to breastfeed which is kind of interesting to, to recall. What did it do for you in terms of kind of helping? I mean, can you describe what it helped you with? 
I think it calmed me down, helped me feel calmer when when we breastfed and just really having all those hormones, those the continuing to have those hormones support the caregiving. And I was doing a lot of caregiving because I was also in a mindset of mother knows best. I need to do this myself. I didn't want help. Um, I had a social kind of reputation of being very independent and capable, um, maybe even a perfectionist, but a capable, just a very capable person professionally and personally. And so I wanted to keep that up as well. And I, and I could. And so I, my parents also felt that they needed my, my new little family to develop together. And so they kind of kept themselves out of it, wanting to be respectful and supportive. And same with my in-laws. My, my mother-in-law was very keen and I appreciated it for her to ask me, how do you want me to do A, B, and C? And, and so I really got to have a say in, in everything, which I, I wanted and liked. And yet that set a precedent when I got pregnant again. So I got pregnant again with Juliet. We actually, again, had tried for a while. It took longer than we anticipated a little bit. With Juliet, I was sick longer. I felt awful. It was just, I couldn't come home from work and just lay on the couch. I had a two-year-old that needed me. Yeah. And so that was really hard. And with Juliet, it really took, I even took some you know, anti-nausea medication. I really tried to help myself not feel shitty because I couldn't feel sick. I couldn't feel poorly. I had another person that was relying on me. And you were working. And I was working. Such a lot. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So much, so, so much. And during that pregnancy, I started to not love mothering. There were moments, these little kind of cracks in my patience with my first daughter that started to surprise me. I started to get frustrated with her in ways that I hadn't before. My unlimited patience started to shore up and I had a limited amount of patience with her, which was a change. And I actually started to get resentful to her. And I'm like, why am I upset by her big feelings? And so that was a real big aha moment of, oh, you're, you're allowed to have big feelings. And when I was a little kid, I, you know, I couldn't have such big feelings like you have or have them all the time. I'm jealous of that. <laughs> I'm jealous that you get to have those feelings. So those were some kind of new moments of reflection that I hadn't otherwise had about myself or my own childhood as it was starting to show up in being a mother and mothering. Yeah. Can I ask you something? How did that, because that feels like a really pertinent moment of allowing yourself to actually have your full feeling range. How did that kind of translate into growing yourself up around your own feelings? Yes. No, that was, I think, that moment of kind of realizing that I was jealous of my child for having a childhood experience, a life experience, a family culture that allowed for a full range of expression and that I didn't get that. And how to then navigate and see in my child's expression of feelings that we were all labeling as healthy and good, even if they were uncomfortable to us as parents or slightly dysregulating. Also, I didn't understand really what dysregulation was. I could identify it in my child, but not in myself at that point, which really changed throughout my parenting of a second child and continues. <laughs> it's an ongoing learning. Yeah. Forever, I think. Forever. Yes. It's, I, I, I celebrate the refinements of it now. Like, oh, I noticed that I needed to put on some headphones or go get a glass of cold water to keep myself in a regulated state. 
But that that first moment, yes, I think that was kind of the cracking open of of a window, my window of tolerance. That was kind of the cracking open of that I could just nudge it open a little bit. I still wasn't so comfortable with those other less optimal, favorable feelings of of being mad or angry or the points that I did get so dysregulated. I can see now that I was so hyper-regulated that I was enraged. Yeah. And because I had had more life experience of being hypo, having dysregulation of, of the hypo, of being more... Under- yeah, so being much more shut down. More shut down space. And so having these kind of hotter, literally hotter feelings and hotter temperament was very unfamiliar to me and also very uncomfortable. And because I had been so otherwise shut down, it was like a, an eruption. It felt comparatively like this huge volcanic eruption whenever it happened because it just, it made my skin crawl. It made me want to kind of pound on my legs and make the sensation stop. It was so kind of viscerally uncomfortable and unfamiliar. And so that was not what I thought would also be a part of caring for young children, which I didn't have personal experience of as a young teenager or young adult. I hardly did any caregiving um, in the sense of kind of babysitting. And then as my profession, I, I worked with children. I was surprised that I wanted to start working with children because I didn't go into the field of speech language pathology thinking I would work with children. I thought I'd work with adults in a medical setting. But there was something tender and fun about playing in kind of more play-based therapy that I think really spoke to my inner child that I really got to meet when I became a mother and have continued to engage with. So not only did I have two biological children, but I met and have become acquainted with my own inner child. Um, So and sometimes I feel like I'm wrangling my adult self, inner child, two children. And from someone who doesn't have a lot of caregiving experience, that's a lot of kids all at once. (laughs) I think that lots of the listeners on this podcast will resonate with that. I resonate with that because we really have to work to parent from our adult place. Yes. As opposed to us all parenting from like our three-year-old or our 10-year-old at whatever developmental point our children are at. And I'm so pleased that you brought that in because I think the job of this parenting, there's so much reparenting that happens every moment of every day where we have to reparent ourselves before we can even turn up as an adult for our children. I think what you're talking about, about the bodily sensations of rage might be a really useful thing to talk a bit more about. Did that happen more with after Juliet was born? Oh, certainly. Yeah, no, that happened with Juliet. Moments of those kind of somatic symptoms started, I'd say, around five or six months postpartum with Juliet. I thought it was related to kind of the fact that my, my, my menses had resumed. My husband and I were chalking up these psychological moments or these kind of flare-ups or whatever, you know, these, you know, meltdowns or these times that I really did not feel like or act like myself to, oh, I'm, you know, I'm six months postpartum and I, you know, I've just resumed my, my menses, my period. So there's a lot of hormonal hormones. Yeah. 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 So we kind of, we chopped it up to that, um, which likely is also part of what was happening. Yeah. But also I think what I was grappling with that I didn't know the name of was this whole concept of my nervous system and the different parts of the nervous system, what a window of tolerance was, what being hyper aroused looked like, could look like. Um, and, and even now that I've, you know, gotten more 
acquainted with it in just kind of even like the 101 education, which you've been a part of in different um, situations, that I didn't go into adulthood, let alone motherhood, with that knowledge of this is how you how we're always modulating our state of being. Yeah. And when your needs aren't being met because you're caring for somebody else, that's going to take a toll or there's going to be a price for that. And so there's other, you really have to also expand your awareness of yourself and that in that learning process, while you're simultaneously working with a child who's, you know, starting to crawl and get more active. And I was engaging with my three-year-old who was very much a three-year-old. It was so much to manage on top of also working. It's just was so much to even fathom. There was so much that I couldn't do it all. And I needed to actually take a, take a break from my job. It was getting to be very overwhelming. And I had a good friend of mine reflect back to me just how burnt out I was. I was very much on a survival, just keep functioning, stay positive, almost kind of almost maybe some toxic positivity about it all or some bypassing of what was really going on. Um, not intentionally, but I think subconsciously because I didn't know more that I then have learned of. I was really dysregulated. I wasn't getting enough time to resource myself because that precedent of Emily's got it. Um, she doesn't need help because there were moments that I was, I really needed help and I wanted to ask for help, but I knew that I had set up these precedents. And so I was ashamed and that I, if I asked for help, that I would be seen as a failure. I was already seeing myself as a failure. And so I didn't want that confirmed by my parents saying, what do you mean you need help? Not that they would ever say that, but definitely the first couple of times that I did ask for help in a puddle of tears because I had definitely reached my max. There was definitely confusion on their face the first couple of times of kind of like, what's going on? Like we thought everything was okay because I kept up that front that everything was okay. But in the privacy of my home, I was scrambling to just get familiar with my own self, get familiar with the needs of my kids. And it was, it really was dizzying. It just made me dizzy that I couldn't keep up. Yeah. And I think that I personally resonate with that, that, and in my labeling, I would call this, well, kind of my language, that we really suffer from our own perfectionism because we drive ourselves. Perfectionism drives burnout. So we drive ourselves and drive ourselves and drive ourselves to be burnt out. And then when we feel like we can't get things right, the crippling shame that really cuts us down, that tells us we can't ask for help and that somehow we've got something wrong or done something wrong. And really, We've become a mother. We have no idea how to become a mother. But again, the perfectionism, the idea of learning something as you're going along or having a process of learning, which will probably be forever, is so uncomfortable when you've always been really good at things or, or felt that you're really good at things. And I think many people don't do things that they are not good at when there's too much of a difficult learning process. I know that often I, if I'm not good enough at something straight away, I'm like, okay, that's not going to be my thing then. And you can't do that with motherhood. You just have to keep on kind of practicing and getting at it. I love what you said about the nervous system because for the listeners, you've learned a lot about your nervous system from listening. But what you describe about having a three-year-old baby who's done to learn to call and a job, like the signs of danger coming in at you from a nervous system perspective, those cues of danger coming into you, 
constantly. Muscle just sent you into overwhelm so much of the time. And I think that's so common. Oh, so, so overwhelmed. I was just drowning in that feeling. And then also when I would go and feel ashamed, then I would be stuck, start in these shame spirals, these shame storms, and just have this mental just cloudiness of how shitty of a mother I was or of a person. And I would just feel so down on myself that would last longer than the actual moment of needing to ask for help. And then I would feel guilty about asking for help and it would just kind of be this cycle. So it was kind of internally a very tumultuous time going back and looking at pictures. I think the days that I took the most pictures were the days that were the hardest because I wanted to prove to myself that things were good. On the outside, my children are beautiful. They're healthy. I love them. I just needed this huge counterweight to how the interior of my mind felt because it was such contrast. And the pictures of myself that I took, I do, on a glance, I do look happy. But I also, if I look more critically, I do look like I'm trying really hard. There's something in my eyes that isn't quite at peace. And it took me a while to find that peace and that contentment because also I had to grow up my self-compassion, my radical self-love, that I wasn't going to be perfect. And there's a really beautiful story um, that I'll leave listeners to find out about in the book about kind of my sources of, of perfectionism. And yet it was in getting to be comfortable with the, the proverbial and actual messiness of life and communicating to my nervous system that that was safety, that that was okay, was a real learning curve. And that was a real edge for me to gradually start relaxing into the imperfection, the continual messiness that is life, and also the continual tending to my nervous system that I would be going through these big kind of ups and downs or that I can go through ups and downs, but also I can come back down and get regulated. I can express myself very authentically and intensely and also come down, repair if I need to um, with myself or with others. But just the concept of really almost by leaps of faith, giving myself that self-compassion, self-love has done me so much, so much good. Because I extend it to my daughters. Why wouldn't I extend it to myself? Yeah, exactly. It was really, it's really also been a journey of worthiness of that unconditional self-love that has been how I've grown up and grown up to love myself, to love the times that I want things a certain way, that I've, the times that I've wanted control and why it makes so much sense that it wasn't possible and why I re behaved the way I did instead of shaming and blaming myself, having a bigger view of the role of my inner child and just my humanity and my need as a mammal <laughs> that I kind of kicking society out of the door and out of my life and just really looking at what I wanted about life, what I wanted about being a parent, what I wanted with my children and kind of getting, getting society's expectations, cultural expectations. I'm half Mexican and idea that a woman will sacrifice herself for her family is very strong. And if you are not, you know, a good, perfect mother and wife, you're a failure. And so really even just chucking that out the window and really broadening my view of the stories that I had made of 
the Latina women that I had exposure to as my as my exemplars. And really looking back at those times, particularly for my work and working with Spanish-speaking children and families, that I once I'd had these hard experiences, these real experiences, and I had these human experiences of being frustrated and exhausted um, and letting myself have that exhaustion. I thought back to those home visits that I did and thought, you know what? To be fair, those women also probably had moments, maybe private, and they took it privately to the bathroom where they were just wringing a dish towel and frustrated. Um, Or at least I hope they allowed themselves those moments of expressing to whatever extent they could and felt, one, allowed by their situation or allowed by their culture to just, oh, you know, just I'm frustrated. Um, Even if that was all they did, let alone maybe raise their voice or spank their child. I don't know. But I couldn't just keep believing the illusion that I had generalized in this snapshot of seeing these happy mothers with their children and doing all the caregiving, all the housekeeping, that that really made them happy all the time. It finally became possible for me to imagine they may not have felt that way all the time. And it's particularly because I was there as, you know, as someone to come and support them with their child development, you know, they're really going to have that mask up because I was society coming into their home. Yeah, and I want to explain, can I explain to the listeners here? So Emily is a speech and language professor and she was working, going on home visits to help um, with um, speech and language concerns. So of course, when when you have a professional come into the house, I would also have my mask up, that mask of perfection and visibility. Yes, everything is wonderful. And I think us all taking down our masks in places we feel safe enough and then not persecuting ourselves with imagining that everyone is as they are when they have their mask up all of the time. Because we do have masks, I think, naturally all of us, because it's self-protection often. But I can hear how much you were imagining that you needed to be like that 24-7. And I think many of us do that because it's so hard to welcome in the humanity. It's so hard because it's so messy and sometimes unpredictable or just uncontrollable. And that's it can be really... Nerve-wracking. It is nerve-wracking. And all those words, what you just said, there's uncertainty, there's messiness, there's the messiness emotionally, physically, the whole space becomes so messy. And you referenced that a little bit earlier on. Tell us about how how did you kind of get more comfortable with the physical messiness because there's so much more like mess in the house and can't kind of keep things looking nice. And I think many people use cleanliness Mm -hmm. and like a tidy house as a way to feel in control and to manage emotions. And so then having that tool taken away and having to deal with a massive amount of emotional messiness is very, very complex um, and also contributes to feeling very overwhelmed. But how did you kind of get more comfortable with that and lower your expectations around that? That's great because, yes, I oftentimes when I would get really activated and really triggered and Going, I'd go into like a cleaning rage. I'd go and vent and do like a conscious rant and just start tidying and picking all this shit up, you know. So um, I would go downstairs, try to remove myself to have those those moments of expression. Um, but it was actually viscerally uncomfortable to see my house in complete disarray. So that was something that my husband's a doctor of Chinese medicine. He would have patients, also mothers in postpartum, that also talk about this like visceral discomfort with an untidied house. And 
So, you know, of course, he wouldn't divulge any other details. He's like, yeah, I have patients that say that same thing. He's like, I kind of can't understand. I'm like, well, I can. I can totally understand. But it took it took some education, like cognitive education of expectations that I have of myself. Housekeeping is not mothering, that that's a whole different job. That, that, you know, like these kind of really being supported, maybe first intellectually to zoom out and look at all that I was doing and all the expectations that I was putting on myself, putting on our family. And who was I doing it for? So kind of what was the why? And that helped me shift. Like if I did go and do something that maybe I had asked my partner, my husband to do, if I went and did it myself, it was because I genuinely wanted to do it. I, but I checked in. So I did it. It was a kind of after doing some more body scanning and kind of tending to my needs that at first, yes, tending to my environment was something that historically had, I had also done as a, as a university student. I would come home, tidy my living space a little bit, and then I could focus and study. So it wasn't something that was different in my, in my temperament. Yeah. But it was just in this new situation. I couldn't, I had other people living with me. I couldn't always have such control, but I did start to see little by little, what did I, for my own sense of staying regulated, did I need to do? But I would check in. I'm like, okay, what do I really need to put away or clean up, if anything? So just starting to do that check-in. Did I really need to do that? And at first there'd be a few times, the few times that I said, no, I don't then I would go and do what I really needed to do, which maybe was I would go lay down or I would go make myself um, a snack or go make myself a cup of tea. And so it was that very slow transition from needing and feeling compelled and almost compulsion to tidy and clean. When I had a moment, I would start turning that moment to myself and check in, literally touch my hand on my heart, hand on my abdomen, close my eyes and just, what do I need? And even maybe say that out loud. What do I need? Do I need to put the laundry away? No, I don't need to. No one's going to be hurt. If someone comes in and sees it, they see it. Maybe they'll say, oh, I can, I can do that for you. Uh, <laughs> someone was going to come into my home. Um, so it was just a very gradual kind of, I don't know, desensitization or deprioritization and a reprioritization of myself and my needs. Because I had erroneously equated a good woman has no needs being low maintenance is the best and low maintenance by no maintenance was good i have to stop you here because i want to do like a massive drum roll or something i wish i had like some like i don't know musical something to shake here because i want every listener to really hear that because that's very very widespread and it's total rubbish it totally is it's not good to have no needs. It just totally screws you over. Yes. All the time. And we need to tend to ourselves. So I'm so happy that you said that. So everyone, please note that it doesn't mean, like, no maintenance is not good. But have your needs. Yeah, please, have, please your, have needs. your needs. And, and if someone does make some, someone probably the opposite sex, oh, you're too high needs. Like, well, then maybe they're not needed in your life. <laughs> um, or... Um, but I mean, when we're talking about basic human needs, if you really look at what your needs are of, I need and needed before pregnancy and since pregnancy, eight to nine hours of sleep. I need quiet and alone time. I'm an int more introverted, you know, have an introverted inclination. I need that alone time. Now I might need to negotiate that differently now as a mother, but 
being able to state that I need that does not make me selfish, does not make me um, a bad person. And if anything, it just makes me really clear on who I am and what I need. Like a fish needs water. A dog needs to go for a walk every evening. You know, different animals need different things. And from our life experiences, that also shapes what we need. So that was also a huge thing learning, again, in a very messy time and maybe in not the best elegant ways that I become more graceful and skilled, mostly skilled at clarifying, identifying to myself what my needs are, communicating what I need as my needs, uh, being able to anticipate those needs a little bit to be more planful because that would, you know, yeah. In an ideal situation that can maybe happen every once in a while, not that everything needs to be ideal, but that can be helpful. But sometimes it's after the fact, or that's how I was learning, that I would start to get edgy and cranky, and then I'd be like, oh, and I would even narrate to my children kind of some mind-mindedness, some reflexive uh, functioning of, I am getting crabby. Oh, I didn't have enough for breakfast. I need to go and stop and have a snack. Thank you for your patience. I'm going to get a snack. So instead of apologizing for the fact that I'm human and I have needs, I say thank you. Thank you so much for your patience. Thank you for, so much for waiting. And I really try to extend that because I also don't want my daughters to feel like they have to apologize for who they are and for what they need. Yeah, and that um, we know that children learn so much more from what we do than what we say. So they model so much on us. My girls actually want to have their own podcast because of this podcast. They keep on wanting to participate in the podcast because they know where it's recorded anyway. That's by the by. But so that modeling of what I am doing, they want to do it too. And so you meeting your needs and modeling, oh, I'm noticing my, um, you know, my emotional state is getting a little bit more kind of highly charged and I can feel my nervous system is in need of some soothing to go and get yourself some food, regulate your blood sugar. And to narrate that to them is so powerful because it gives them so much permission to do that as well. Yeah. And as a, you know, as a speech language pathologist, I'm thinking I'm giving them language models to know how to even identify it, that internal thinking. It enhances their, their mirror neurons and theory of mind of letting them know what's going on inside of me that they might be able to identify that inside of themselves or build compassion, not only for myself, but for other peers. So inherently it's this beautiful connective loop of, by me narrating what I need, I am teaching them empathy. I am teaching them how to regulate their own nervous system. I am teaching them all these other social emotional skills that are so valuable to their development. And yet it also centers my needs, which I would have never thought was possible or would make a good mother until learning more about motherhood studies and these other um, frameworks of feminism, of matricentric feminism, mother-centered feminism. That has also been, again, kind of these intellectual pieces that I have so benefited from learning and then starting to integrate into my physical lived experience of just having more knowledge and information because knowledge is power. And also at the same time in um, working with patients, there is defined literature that stroke patients who get education about a stroke have bet and their caregivers and their community, they have better outcomes because they understand and have some education about what happened to them, what's going on, what they might expect. And that really reduces anxiety. And so I feel like entering motherhood, there wasn't enough explicit education about dysregulated uh, 
nervous systems. What is your nervous system? Having needs, uh, what we do to mitigate and navigate regulation all the time. Do we get up and go for a walk? Do we chew gum because we want to chew and bite on something? We're doing all these things that we don't really realize is to keep ourselves awake and focused and within our window of tolerance. But giving some of that overt, explicit education, um, you know, maybe as young adults or in our adolescence, and then again, um, later in life, I think would help even the whole concept of mattress sense. Like if we could get some information before we're actually in the stage of development and experience, I think that could be so helpful to have that growing up experience be more supported and feel more typical than I'm broken, I'm wrong, some, I'm a failure, and uh, I'm going crazy. Because you're not going crazy. You're human. No, we're not going crazy. And I think many of us feel like that. We're broken, we're crazy, um, we're having an experience that is um, atypical. I think in many cases, motherhood cuts us down to our knees. And some of us get a diagnosis of postpartum depression or anxiety, but I think there's a huge picture of people who really struggle and perhaps don't meet clinical uh, criteria for diagnosis. But I mean, I don't think this huge diagnosis has that much value. So I think that um, there's a huge range of us who really struggle in this period. And it's not because we're broken. It's because these are experiences that change everything and we don't have enough kind of context and understanding and education to support us in those. And there's so much gaslighting that goes on of new parents. Now, Emily, I'm wondering, do you want to tell us anything about um, your book? I think that um, I would really suggest the readers um, buy it. It's called Unexpected. Um, if you've struggled with rage, you'll really um, enjoy hearing Emily's stories about how she dealt with that. Do you want to talk about anything from the book? Yeah, no, I've, I, I tried to kind of make this arc of my sense of self, my where I was understanding myself as a mother with my first pregnancy, and then how that really changed adding another child. Um, but also just, I think I was already entering the trials and tribulations or the learning curve of um, the really kind of intense growing myself up that happened, I think happened to happen when I was pregnant again, but with a three-year-old. So I think as, as you mother longer, whether you have one child or more children, there are just new seasons, new years of, of mothering, I, you know, another 365 days of postpartum. So I would say that it just really shows, I really got curious about my ethnic identity of being half Mexican and kind of how much did that play into how I was feeling about myself and these ideas of motherhood that I um, took on. And then I also share kind of in scenic language what it was like for me to grapple with uh, maybe taking, you know, taking a leave from work, uh, getting extra support and getting a nanny and kind of all these internal stories and judgments that I worked through. And so I really show and share um, my thought process. What, what was I grappling with inside my head to, to get a nanny, to get support um, that I historically had judged? Oh, I would never do that. So I also talk about... Um, meeting my inner child and getting more acquainted with her in a very clear way and really having some aha moments and trying then to put that into my mothering and the the messiness that was the first couple times, fifth times, twelfth times of of trying to integrate and acknowledge my inner child as well as 
my actual child and children. It's kind of a peek into a mother's mind who's really trying to grow herself up and the inner dialogues that I had with myself and how that was being met by external circumstances and and how I also didn't know, and this was also what I learned while I was writing the book, how experiences in my adolescence and my adolescence mental health had made kind of risk factors for being really dysregulated and having, you know, perinatal anxiety and mood symptoms, disorder symptoms. However, like you, Kath, I don't know that I, I've got mixed feelings about diagnoses of mental health when I really think under all the mental health diagnoses that are important for individuals to get support. And if you are medicated, take your medication and to be supported in that way. And underneath all of it is our nervous system. And I think with more understanding of our nervous systems, that those hypo symptoms and hyper symptoms of dysregulation can be adjusted by pharmaceutical medication, but also alternative methods of medication and remediation. But I also think just education of what it is your body needs and what your nervous system needs and your life and lived experience, your your epigenetic, your your relational, your family history experiences of anxiety and depression and kind of much more complex than meeting, you know, in the DSM-10, five diagnosable, well, you know, clinical diagnosing symptoms. I think it's much more complex than that. But individuals in crisis do need some relief. I felt like my moments of crisis were not so intense that I needed to take um, a pharmaceutical prescription. And I talk about that and why and why an early earlier experience in my adolescence really played into that decision and why it wasn't just me being stubborn. I had a good reason. I had some body memories about why that wasn't a good idea. And I'm so pleased you touched on that because that um, I really want to listeners to know that everyone has different experiences around what support they need postpartum. I kind of had a breakdown at like 10 months postpartum and um, I did go on to medication. I needed that capacity at that point that the medication gave me to kind of live and do what I needed to do to work, to manage, to kind of address some of the issues that I had faced. I'm really conscious, I guess, of, in fact, I really want each of you who's listening to hold your own experience about it doesn't matter whether you've got a diagnosis or you don't have a diagnosis or you are on medication or you're not on medication, honoring your own experience and really investigating your own needs is kind of the most important thing, I think. Yeah, and I also would encourage um, listeners to seek out mental health professionals that know and are familiar with perinatal mood and anxiety disorders that look at those risk factors um, that maybe aren't so prevalent in your immediate, maybe last five or 10 years of your life, but maybe go back further than that. In my acknowledgments, I talk about some things that I learned while I was editing in the book um, from Postpartum Support International that really helped me see and bring in content to the book of this longer arching points of relevance that I had kind of discounted, but actually played some of a role of how what I was experiencing when kind of everything came tumbling down um, in my late postpartum with my second child. And childhood trauma was a huge contributor to that and the adaptations that we deliver. I mean, that we developed so perfectionism as a contributor to um, Yes, they talked about that. Postpartum. 
Okay. Before we close, Emily, is there anything else you'd like to share with the listeners? It's been really beautiful to have you on. It's been such an honor. And Kat, I just want to say thank you for making this offering of Grow Yourself Up, your your podcast content and length and the way you share so candidly um, from your own mothering experiences, as well as um, from the literature and your you know professional self and kind of presenting uh, your integrated self of your mothering self and your professional self. I found I have personally found so helpful. I've shared your podcast with friends of mine that are um, mothering. So I just thank you so much for what you're offering and I'm excited to see see what Grow Yourself Up does for those listeners. That's so sweet. Thank you so much. That really touches me. Okay. Lots of love to all of you and um, thanks for being here with us today. You've been listening to Grow Yourself Up, hosted by Kath Cunahan. We'll be back next week with a new episode supporting you to better understand and tend to yourself for more heart-centered, connected, authentic, and resilient living. Thank you.